And that universal temptation is to put confidence in something other than Jesus Christ. Uh, Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, let's just stop right there. By context, do you remember what, what is he talking about when he uses the word flesh there? Do you remember from last week? Remember what that's about? Yeah, it, it's it's a it's code language. Excuse me, code language for the religious system of Israel, and and, and we see that by context as he continues. Because in verse four he says, "I myself might have confidence in the flesh in the same thing. If anyone else has a mind to put more confidence in the flesh, I far more." And we see in these verses where Paul had previously put his confidence. Where was Paul's confidence prior to his coming to Christ? And look at some of the things he lists. He says, well, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel, particularly of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, As to the law, he was a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee, as you know, was a a, a law expert. Um, We... You know, in, in, in the old sense of the word, they were the lawyers. Now, lawyers today mean something very different than that. But in the nation of Israel, these were the lawyers. They were the guys that were schooled in the law. They were experts in the law. If you had a question about uh, what the Scripture said, about what God would want, about what Judaism would teach, you went to the Pharisees. So when he says uh, uh, right here that as to the law, I am a Pharisee, what he's saying is I'm an expert. I have advanced degrees in the law is a way of thinking about it. In regard to his zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. He he was not a pew Israelite who sat on the couch and, and was not involved. No, as 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 a, another system arose in Palestine that challenged the Jewish religion, Paul was out there persecuting these people. In fact, the first time that we're introduced to the Apostle Paul is in the book of Acts where Stephen is being stoned, the first martyr of Christianity. And and Dr. Luke, who is penning the account of Acts, tells us that there was a young man standing as Stephen's body lay bloody and dying in the road following the stoning. And that young man was holding some of the coats of the people who was throwing the rocks. And his name was Saul a young religious zealot who persecuted the church. And he says at the end of verse 6, as to law-based righteousness in terms of this is what God has said, this is what God has ruled, these are his commands in the estimation of the nation of Israel and of the Jewish religion, Paul was blameless. He was perfect in the sight of the Jewish law. But notice back in verse 3, he says, that's not what we do. That's not what we do. We, we don't put confidence in a religious system. We don't put confidence in works that somehow appease God. And, and I, I hope that all of you have some familiarity with the major religions of the world. I mean, if, if you were sitting on an airplane, let's say you're going on a trip this afternoon, you sit on an airplane and, and a Buddhist sits down next to you. I mean, do you know something about Buddhism that would help you 
as you sort of dialogued with them about the conversation? Do you know something like that? Or a Hindu or a New Age person, New Age religion is very, very popular today. Um, Or a Muslim or a Jewish person or somebody that practiced some folk religion or or Taoism or something like that. I mean, did you have some sense of that? If you don't, then you need to. Because as you talk to people about what they believe, what you will find is one singular common denominator. And that is whether you're a Buddhist or an animist or a Muslim or a Taoist or a Hindu or whatever, the common denominator in all those other religions is that there is something that you have to do in order to either appease God in the systems where God is something more than a blob, or to gain enlightenment, or to gain heaven, or to gain, you know, becoming one with the oneness of the universe in the, in the New Age stuff. There's something you have to do. And whether or not you succeed depends upon what? What you do, how well you do at it, right? Even in Catholicism, it's, well, how are those good works going? How are those works of satisfaction? How are those duties of penance? And if you don't measure up, the blood of Christ is not sufficient. You go to purgatory for 50 years or 100 years or 500 years or 1,000 years or whatever. Even in Catholicism, the system has become a works righteousness, something that I do to earn God or earn heaven, whatever heaven happens to be in any given religious system. And that's why this section of Scripture is particularly helpful because you say, you know what, Keith, I I get it. I'm not a Buddhist. I I can put you to rest. Well, that's good. I'm glad you're not a Buddhist. I'm glad you're not a Hindu. I'm I'm glad you're not in this. But, But here's what so often happens in Christianity. Paul talks about it in Galatians. He talks about it in Philippians. Is we come to Christ, we say salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But then we start slouching towards works righteousness in the Christian life. Don't we? And we talked about some of the uh, indicators of that. How do you respond to criticism? Do you get defensive? Or do you say, nope, you got me. I'm a sinner. Absolutely. I'm just demonstrating my depravity. I mean, is that your response? Or do you say, but, 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 but here's why I should, here's why. Indicators like that show us that without even trying, we will slide toward a works righteousness, even though our theology tells us otherwise. So I think in in light of those things that what Paul has to say with us, even though we we, we may not be buying into a system of works righteousness, what Paul is going to tell us today is particularly applicable. This is very hard to present in an outline, so I may not follow the outline. I don't know what I'm going to do, but... Here's how it's going to go, okay? Paul's claim to the confidence in the flesh, you can see it's based on things that he does, or, or even not just things he does, things he, 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 he can't really control, like what family he's born in or what nation he belongs to. But he's going to say that's, that's not what life is all about. Look at this. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss 
for the sake of Christ. And look at verse 8 now. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I want you to notice, first of all, and you may have missed it just in the reading, that he's going to use this little word to count three times. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, anytime you see repetition of a particular word, that's the clue to the reader to say, hey, this is something really important that we need to pay attention to. And again, you can't see it in the English. You guys know, because Pastor Cherry talks about this all the time, Greek has different they're not really tenses, like we think of tenses of verbs in English. They're, they're more aspects. Um, the, the, way, the way you form a verb in Greek um, communicates what type of action you're trying to communicate. And, and without getting too technical on you here, Paul's going to change a couple of the, the verb aspects here that have particular significance to what he's trying to say. So I'll try to wave my hands at that along the way. But notice, he says, I count. I reckon, I regard, I consider. Um, and, and why you need to, to pay attention to this is because those, those words repeated three times refer to the intellectual process behind the object of his trust and thus the object that brings him his confidence. Does that make sense? Okay, the look on your face says no. Let me try that again. What Paul is saying in using this language is there was something that he started thinking about, something that was a revelation to him where he said, oh, I've never thought about it like that, right? And as he thinks about that, that process of thinking leads him then not to trust in his works, not to trust in the system of religion, but that change of thinking has caused him to shift from trusting in religion to trusting in Christ. Do you see that? So this consider, this count, this count, this count is the thinking behind his trust, which is behind his confidence. Does that make sense? Okay, good. All right. So you, you got to get that because he's going he's gonna to teach us three different things about I thought about this and then this changed. And I thought about this and then this changed. I thought about this other thing and then my trust changed over here. Okay, we're going to watch it three times. I'll try to break it down so you can see it a little more than the text reveals here, okay? So the intellectual process behind the object of his faith, the first thing he's going to say in verse 7, what is he counting? What's changing in his thinking? And it's this, what was gain is loss on account of Christ. What is gain is actually lost. And, and, And watch how he does this. He says, before I understood the gospel, the things that I put my confidence in were things like this. I was an Israelite. I was a Benjaminite. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, I, you know, people came to me and said, tell me what the Jewish religion teaches. And he said, well, the Jewish religion teaches it. He was the expert. He was a Pharisee. He was out there persecuting the church because they were, in a sense, teaching a different message than Judaism. And when you think about all the rules and regulations, if, if people took a poll and said, who is the most godly person in Jerusalem? They would say, guys like Paul, because he follows the law. He's a teacher of the law. He is blameless in the sight of the law. Those were the things that were gained. Those are the things that he said, yes, this is how I know I am acceptable before God. This is what makes me right. This is who I am. I am a Jewish person. I am an Israelite. I am a Pharisee. 
And then the gospel came. And it changed his thinking. The gospel came and he began to see that all these things that were gain, all these things that mattered to him, all these things that he said, this is who I am, this is what defines me, this is what makes me right before God, he shifted in his thinking and he said, you know what? That's actually loss. And, and loss is... It, it, I, I struggled even what to put on the board here. You can legitimately translate the word loss in your Bible as damage. You say, damage? Damage because all of those things tempt me to put my confidence and trust in them. And what does that do to your true spiritual condition? It not just damages you, it damns you to hell. Do you see that? So it's, he says, something changed. And he says, I came to this place where I saw that whatever was gained to me, all those things, now they're loss. They're damage. And when we say, well, what on earth changed your mind, Paul? What on earth? Well, he tells us. Look at the text. For the sake of Christ. Literally, he says, on account of Christ. I met Jesus. I learned the gospel. And it completely changed my thinking. Now, this is where the form of the verb is significant because the form of the verb here, some of you have studied Greek, um, it, it's the perfect aspect. The perfect aspect. Now, we have, a, we have a perfect in English, but it's not the same thing. Perfect is, is the idea that Paul was, was impacted with the gospel and it was so significant. It changed the course of his direction and now he continues to walk that direction today. Okay? Perfect is a one-time action that leads to an ongoing walk. Okay? You got it? So he sees the gospel. It changes his thinking. It challenges his whole system. He repents. He turns away from it. And now he's walking in the way of faith and trust in Christ. That's what the perfect aspect really is designed to show us here. And, and that is so significant, and I put it up on the board because it's so significant, because, because you can't trust Christ and something else. You can't. The gospel draws a line in the sand and says, whose side are you on? What are you going to put your trust in? And you can't do this. I want one foot in Jesus and one foot on how great of an athlete I am or I was a good mom or I got a lot of money or I'm really t pretty talented or all the things that we identify ourselves with. You can't sit on the fence. And Paul says, when I heard the gospel, it so riveted me, it so convicted me that I repented for the sake of Christ and I now see that all those things that I was trusting in, all those things that identified me were actually damaged. That's the first thing I want you to see. Here's the second thing I want you to see. He says it in verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So, so now watch what he did. He said, all that stuff that characterized me in my former religion, me in my former life, all those things that I put my, my faith and my hope and my confidence in, and, and, I, and I hope you're tracking with me because... 
Any, any Jewish people here? I don't want to pick on you, but I, I was pretty sure this is an all-Gentile audience, but I thought I'd better ask, okay, before I made assumptions. So you say, well, you know what, Keith, I, I was never tempted to put my trust in a system of Judaism. Well, I know that. But all of us had a system of trust and confidence that we had, a, a practical theology, if you will, where there was something we were trusting before Christ. Would you just take a moment and think about your life before Christ and say, what was I trusting in? What, I, what identified me? How did I think about myself? You know? And, and if you're going, well, Keith, I don't think that deep. Well, let me give you some help with that. Um, the things that tend to tempt us in terms of our confidence or trust are things like this, our vocation, our education, the things we're good at, the roles that we play, right? The achievements that we have, right? The, the talents that God gives us for his glory. And, and instead, of, instead of receiving them as good gifts from God, we make them gods to worship. And then we start thinking about ourselves as, yeah, that's me. That's me, right? How about <laughs> it could be church membership, sure. It could be. Yeah, if, if you're putting your confidence in, in, in membership, Above the Christ of the church. Sure, absolutely. So, so watch how Paul expands this here. He says, now that I've come to see the gospel, now that I've come to see Jesus, I count all things to be loss. Everything else, even good things, even godly things, th- those are great. But ultimately, does that really matter? Does it matter if you have a really nice family if you don't have Christ? Does it matter if you really have a comfortable retirement and you don't have Christ? Does it matter if you have your health and don't have Christ? Does it matter if people think highly of you and and give you great accolades and give you great praise and and you just love your friends and love all this and, and you die without Christ? Do you see his logic? There are many good things, and, and, and Paul is not here demeaning those, those good things. He's not saying you should feel bad for having those good No, he's not saying that. He's just saying ultimately, at, at the end of the day, at the final hour, when Jesus calls you, there's only one thing that really matters. And he says here, in view of, I count all things to be loss, in view of the surpassing value of, of knowing Christ. So the first thing he wanted us to do was to think and say, those things I put my trust in are damaged because I have to make a decision whether I'm going to trust Jesus or these other things. The second thing he says is, as you think about all these things in your life, Jesus is the most valuable thing you can have. In the Gospels, he is compared to a pearl of great price. He is compared to a treasure that is found hidden in a field. And what does the guy do? He goes home. He sells everything he has to go buy that field. Because there is an infinite value in Jesus. And a Christian is somebody that recognizes that, you know what? I praise God if I have a good family. I praise God if God has given me money. I praise God if I have talents and abilities. I praise God if I have health. I praise God for all these good gifts. But at the end of the day, the most valuable thing I have is not the gifts that God gives me, but God himself. He is more valuable than anything else. Third thing, he says... (laughs) 
as if we didn't get it the first two times, he's going to say something very similar at the end of verse 5. He says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So on your outline there, he says, I count all things rubbish. Now, you guys have probably all heard or most of you have heard sermons on this before and preachers like to talk about that word rubbish and what it means and um the okay can we talk about a gross scale a gross scale over here is the least gross and over here is the most gross okay it sounds like a junior high illustration doesn't it it really isn't um the the least gross that this word can refer to is garbage And it can mean all those other things as you get more gross. And Paul says, as I think about Christ, as I think about the things that were gained to me, as I think about the all things in my life, I have come to the place in terms of what I embrace that makes an eternal difference, that everything else must be considered garbage compared to Christ. Okay? And you understand, you know, the footnote, he's not saying all the good things in your life are bad. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, ultimately, you can't depend on those things. That as as you consider, that remember that intellectual process? As you think, what really matters ultimately? He says, Jesus, everything else is garbage. You, you say, well, really? I mean, Paul, that's kind of extreme. I mean, it's kind of... But think about what he's saying. What we do with so many of the good things that God gives us is we make them gods. We take the good things that God gives us that he intends for us to enjoy and we we make that the reason we exist. And that's why in Isaiah chapter 64 verse 4, Isaiah, actually God speaking uh, through Isaiah says, everything you do Every righteous act you perform, every good thing you attempt to do is like a filthy garment. God is not impressed with us. He is not impressed with what we do. We can thank Him for the good gifts He gives us. We can praise Him for His many graces but we ought not worship those things. We cannot build a system of becoming right before God on those things and the identity that we achieve from them. He says, if you want to be a Christian, ultimately you count everything else rubbish. I must see my own righteousness as garbage in order to gain Christ. Now, That'll hurt your self-esteem, won't it? Right? Do you see why even saying that we go, ooh. But here, this, this is... If we don't truly see who we are 
and what we do as complete garbage in the eyes of God, we will never pursue a righteous Savior. We won't. We have to have the courage to see things as God sees them. We must have the courage to say to people that don't know Christ, you're a great guy. I love you. You've done some really good things in your life, and I'm not discounting those things. But those good things in the eyes of God are nothing but that what's out there in that dumpster right now. Okay? I'm sorry if that makes you feel bad, but it's true. Because until we see everything we do, everything we are, as garbage, we can't have Christ. Wow. We can't have it. Um, You could legitimately translate the word dung. Filthy righteousness. Filthy rags. Garbage. But But when we get there, when we repent, when we see that, you know, I may have done some things that I think are good, that other people are good, but God's not impressed by them. God says they're like a filthy garment. God says it's like garbage. What's our hope? Here's our hope. And, and this is, he, he, he shifts now. He says, I've been thinking about this, and I've been thinking about this, but now that I've come to Christ, let me tell you why it's so valuable. Let me tell you why this is such a wonderful message. And I, I, don't, know, I don't know how to outline this. How do you outline the most profound truths in the universe? I don't know. So I just threw something on your notes, and you can wave your hands at it, and I'm just going to tell you what, it, what this stuff means, okay? Look what he says here. Verse 9, what, what is our hope? If, if we are counting our righteousness as rags and we turn to Christ, we trust Him, our confidence is in Him, what is our hope? Verse 9 says that we may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And now I need to get out the whiteboard. Because watch how this works. This, this is so important that you see this. You have, you have two choices, and Paul has made this crystal clear for us to see. There are thousands upon thousands of forms of what we call self-righteousness. Okay? And we can just, we can just fill this in with all sorts of religions, of good works, of, of great deeds, of charitable acts, of um, you know, giving medicine to orphans and, and just all sorts of good things. And, and they're good things. There's nothing wrong. Those are good things, many of them. But Paul says, even if you could be the best over here, it doesn't matter eternally. And he says, my only hope, now now watch the language here, is to be found where? In him. Did you hear Terry's message last week? Okay. Did you hear his? Did you think Terry and I conspired together before Sunday? We didn't, but God did. Okay. Um, Very often we talk about what we're teaching. That was one of those weeks, I I, I don't remember what happened, but we didn't talk about it. But again, God God was... uh, 
God was on his throne doing what he does. Our only hope is if we can be found in him. If we, if we can somehow participate in Christ's death and burial and resurrection, or what he focuses on here is if somehow we can participate in Christ's righteousness. And, and that's where you have Jesus, and he... Do you ever wonder... This, this is one of those things. Um, okay. Jesus came to die on the cross, rise from the dead, to, to pay for our sins. Do you ever wonder why, if, if the cross was all that the gospel was about, Jesus came as a baby? And before that as an embryo, a little baby inside his mama? You ever wonder why he had to grow up and become an adult and live doing ministry for three and a half years? Do you ever wonder, well, if, if it's all about the cross, then why doesn't God just you know teleport Jesus down? Boom, there he is, right on the cross. There he is. He just magically appears on the cross. He dies for sin. He rises from the dead. He goes back to heaven. Why not that? Because remember, the gospel is not about singular substitution. It is about double substitution. Are you with me? There is a twofold transaction. There is a twofold transaction. One transaction is Jesus takes my sin and he pays for it so that I no longer bear it, right? That's one transaction. That's substitution number one. Jesus takes my sin. And you know, you know the verse, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, right? That's what that's talking about. Jesus is taking my sin. He goes to the cross. He dies. He bears the wrath. He bears the punishment so that I don't have guilt for my sin anymore, all right? But remember, it's double substitution. The reason Jesus came to live before he died, is because he came to live a perfect life of righteousness. Do you remember in in Romans 5, he's called the second Adam? Do you remember that? You say, second Adam? Why would they call him the second Adam? Because Jesus came to do what people were supposed to do. God made Adam and Eve. What What were they supposed to do? to honor and glorify and love and worship and follow God perfectly. That's what they were supposed to do. But they didn't. They turned away from God. They rebelled, brought sin into the world, and and we know the story. So Jesus comes as the second Adam, right? He comes to live that life that we were supposed to live, not just to die on the cross to take away sin, but to live a perfect life. I, I I was teaching Romans 2 to my kids the other night. And you know what Romans 2 says? You don't need to turn there. Romans 2 says that... God will judge people on the basis of their deeds. And we say, well, uh, yeah, but I'm trusting in Jesus. God will judge a person on the basis of their righteousness or lack thereof. And we say, if God judges everybody on the basis of their deeds, on the basis of their righteousness, if if what Jesus said in Matthew 5 is really true, that we're supposed to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, then our only hope to come to God, to go to heaven, to be reconciled to Him, is if we can somehow have perfect righteousness, right? God doesn't lower the bar and say, well, I know you're all sinners, so we're, we're, we're going 
we're going to lower it to the, to the JV opening height, right? That, that, right? He doesn't do that. It's up here. It's perfection. It's perfect holiness. And our only hope is Jesus comes. He lives a perfect life of righteousness, the perfect life that we were supposed to give. And double substitution says, Jesus gets my sin and I get his righteousness. Do you remember this? It's the reformers. The reformers like to talk about it like this. That we, the sinner, is clothed in Christ's righteousness. So, so th- this is the most amazing thing. For the person that's trusting in Christ, when God looks at him, he doesn't see all my sin, all my depravity, all my imperfections, all my shortcomings, all my weaknesses. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son. Is that not amazing? And, and, and notice, it, it, it's, it's not a game. God doesn't say, well, I'm just going to pretend that I'm looking at Jesus and not Keith. He's not pretending. There is real righteousness actually deposited, a real robe of righteousness actually given. And we stand in his presence blameless, as the scripture says, and with great joy. There's a double substitution. So he says, my only hope is to be connected to, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes by faith. Now, now here's the language I want you to see. The prepositions, and I'm, I'm going to give you, I'm, I'm warning you, I'm going to give you flashbacks, bad memories of fifth grade English grammar class right now, okay? But just stay with me. You need to notice the prepositions, those little connecting words. You remember little connecting words, by and through? And, okay. N- notice, a righteousness that comes by faith. And then he says here, a righteousness from God on the basis of faith. Now, this is so important that we see this, okay? The basis, okay, the basis, basis, uh, I'm sorry, um, we'll start here, the foundation, the source, the, the one who earns, okay, where does that righteousness come from, look at what it says, it comes from God, It is Christ's righteousness, earned by Christ, his very own, sourced in him, founded in him, given to the sinner. The instrumental cause, the instrumental cause is faith. Okay? Now this is very important. Reformers wrote volumes and volumes and volumes on this. There is nothing magical about faith. There's no pixie dust in faith. It's not like, oh, I believe and wonderful things happen. You know, I mean, look at that. People are believing at the sports game and their team still loses, right? There's no magic in the believing itself. It is what the object of that faith is in, right? It is the object. It is who I'm trusting. 
so that the foundation, the source, where the righteousness comes from is God through the person of Christ, but it is accessed through faith on the basis of. Think of faith as the conduit. It's the pipe that connects the righteousness of Christ to me. And he says, that's that's my hope. My only hope is to be found in him, having a righteousness not of my own derived from the law, but a righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, founded in God, sourced in God, accessed through the vehicle, through the instrumental cause, is what the reformers called it, of faith. And you say, well, that's great. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I'm forgiven. Is that what it means to be in Christ? That's not just it, because look at what he says. It's about knowing him. You know, this this is not... You you understand that... um, Okay. Any doctors in the room? Okay. Right? Okay. Um, There are really good doctors who care for their patients, that listen, that talk, that, right, they get lots of information, that good bedside matter, and then they decide what the problem is and what to do, right? And then there are some other doctors that come in and they write a prescription, right? And they see you. And it's like a 30 second transaction, right? Um, You understand that, that, this is not like the latter transaction. It's not like we come to Jesus, he writes us a, pre- a quick prescription for righteousness and forgiveness of sin and says, here, I'll see you later. That's not it. Paul says when we come to him, the, the value is not just what he does for us, but now that we have a relationship with him, that there's a fellowship, there's a knowing, there's a walking with, there's a, a, a Jesus with me in this. I'm, I'm, I'm tipping my hand a little bit. We're, we're going to talk about false Jesuses next hour, okay? So you guys can get a little preview. There is a, a Jesus that we're going to call the get-out-of-hell-for-free Jesus. He is a false savior. It is a false doctrine. It is a false gospel. But here's how it goes. Come to Jesus so you don't have to go to hell, okay? That is only part of the truth. That That is... That is one element of a comprehensive gospel. And that is not what Paul is all excited about. He's like, oh, get, get your ticket so you don't have to go to hell. He says, no, no, no. I can be found in him, not having a righteousness my own derived from the law, but a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith so that I might know him and be with him. To know him, the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his suffering. This is what Terry was talking about in Romans 6 last week, that when we come to Christ, uh, we participate in his death and burial and resurrection so that when Jesus died, the spiritual spiritual mechanics of that then gets applied to the sinner whose old self dies, right? Right? And then Jesus was buried. And that old man, that old person that we were, the old sinful self gets gets buried. And then as Jesus was raised from the dead, we rise from the dead, not, not like we're going to someday when Jesus comes back, but we, we rise in the sense that we are given new life, given the Holy Spirit. We were raised to walk a newness of life with Him. 
Paul says, that's what I'm, also, that's what I'm excited about. That I might know him, the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. And then he looks down the corridor a little bit and says, in order to attain to the resurrection from the dead. What are you trusting in? Where's your confidence? We need this, guys. <laughs> Even if we know an orthodox gospel, we need this because we can so easily slide into a confidence, a trust in other things and forget that this is our only hope. This is, this is our only prayer. That sounds sacrilegious. This is it. We, we don't have another option. So, so here, here's the challenge. Let's really live like this is the only option. Let, let's not be offended when someone implies that we might be a sinner. Yes, you got me. I'm a card-carrying one. Let me tell you about my Savior. Right? And let's take this message and remind people that though they may do good things, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Even religious things ultimately don't matter. The only thing that matters is at the end of time are we found in Him, having a righteousness that is not our own, but a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith.